I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. I'll end those uh, words of William Wordsworth uh, when I was in primary school, probably about the age of my daughter now, I think it was. And uh, my poem came to mind the other day uh, as daffodils are starting to appear. Certainly you can buy bunches of them in, in the shops quite easily now. And uh, you can see here and there that the green stems are there, if not the yellow trumpet yet. But the poem also came to mind because of that word crowd. And I was pondering how many people make a crowd. How many are in a crowd? Well, um, the, the second verse of the poem... Uh, goes on to say that in, in a glance of the eye that he sees maybe sort of 10,000 of the daffodils standing there. I'm, I'm not sure that he actually counted them. But, you know, he saw a huge number. Uh, and he also kind of speaks of that in terms of the stars in the sky, much as we remember God saying to Abram, uh, by looking up and seeing the number of stars in the sky, and that's got to be the number of children, the number of uh, descendants he would have, the size of his family. Um, but we might also be familiar with the saying, two's company and three's a crowd. So maybe it depends on the context you're in for quite what a crowd is. A true crowd is uh, actually not simply being in the same place at the same time, but is something about having something in common, uh, a common purpose, a common interest. And the interest of the crowd at the start of Matthew 5 it comes from Jesus being there. How uh, he had been going round village to village right at the start of his ministry and bringing healing and word spreads. You see this just at the, the tiny bit at the, at the end of the previous chapter. He's, he's bringing healing. He's bringing wholeness into people's lives. And the story is getting about. And so there is a crowd. I'm not sure that this is yet a crowd of 10,000. I doubt it's even a crowd of 4,000 or 5,000, uh, such as he miraculously feeds at various times. But there's a crowd there. The word is known that he is a person that does healing. He is doing mighty miracles, mighty signs are happening. And the crowd are ready to listen. But yet what we actually see here 
is that Jesus saw the crowds and he went up the mountainside. So this bit of teaching that we get today, this, the Beatitudes, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, is really directed at the disciples rather than the whole crowd. It's to those that he has called, those that are close, those that have said, yes, we, we've got to follow and we want to be your people. And this is the first bit of teaching that Matthew records as being what Jesus has said to them rather than simply coming and following and seeing the mighty miracles. He leads them away from what we assume might be beside the lake because those words that he's about to share need careful consideration. And the crowd might not be quite ready to give the consideration that's needed. They're after the signs, they're after the wonders. But the disciples need to know more about the kingdom. As do the, the people. But he doesn't want too many jumping to the wrong conclusion about what he says. Jesus' words are countercultural. They go against the unjust rulers. He attacks also the widespread misunderstanding that exists in society of how they view one another. And he doesn't want that crowd jumping to the wrong conclusion, racing ahead, starting to lead a revolution that he had not planned to bring. And so it's the disciples that he speaks with. He needs to see change in the thinking of those who consider themselves closest to him. Now, of course, we'll see later in the Gospels that this idea of a change in thinking is not necessarily there among his followers. There's got to be times when they do the wrong thing. And he has to say, no, that's not it. Do it this way. A couple of weeks ago, when Danny and Ruth brought Josie for dedication, we remembered that bit of story of how the disciples tried to turn away the children instead of welcoming them. And Jesus had to say, no, that's not it. That's not my kingdom. Welcome the children. Let them come. And we can also see it in other times that the disciples say, stop shoving. Keep your distance, but yet Jesus welcomes 
here, he says, that many of those that are thought of poorly in society are blessed. But the blessed here is not like the blessed, the blessing that we did with Josie the other week. It's not meaning directly praised or honoured, reflected on by God in a certain way. But Jesus is saying that the those suffering misfortune are fortunate in other ways. I think this is uh, maybe the the rare occasion where the Good News Bible uh, translation where it puts in the word happy. You know, happy are those. You know, and we quite often look at that and go happy those good news translators what a load of rubbish but actually the, going back to the Greek the, the, the word happy actually is a better translation than blessed um, but it, it's kind of fortunate is the meaning the culture of the time taught that if you were poor or sick, it was the result of something you had done. That your forefathers, or maybe you yourself, had been guilty of a sin. We see this at the time that Jesus is later questioned about a blind man. Who was at fault? This man or his parents? Neither. And give sight. We also see the flip side in when Jesus talks about how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Harder than a camel at the eye of a needle. And this leaves everyone perplexed. Well, if a rich man can't get into heaven, how am I supposed to get in? They thought that earthly riches equated with God's blessing but that's not the case always remember that the wealth of an individual has come from somewhere else and sometimes that wealth is through unfair or unjust practice the disciples should have known by those later events the things that they have taught in the Beatitudes in this passage that Sue's brought to us today. The first teaching we have of Jesus. But yet the words don't sink in to the disciples. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek. I wonder whether still today in the church those words are sometimes lost. And whether we get the full meaning 
the full understanding in our heart of who Jesus calls us to be. The poor in spirit Jesus talks of are not lacking in faith. It is the world's ways that have robbed them and oppressed them. Their spirit in humanity is low. But they're actually fully reliant on God. And they know the depth of God's love and provision. Those who mourn perhaps should be thought of as those who have loved and lost. And they will know God's love. But of course mourning and bereavement is not only of an individual who has died. But it might be for many reasons. Maybe the lack of employment the ending of a relationship perhaps the loss of one's home as we get older and maybe have to go into care the the loss of one's independence when we are sick and someone else looks after us whatever worldly situation we find ourselves in God knows where we are And he brings comfort. The meek are not weak, but humble people. Not arrogant or boastful. Not people who say, look what I have done. Or people who wonder where their recognition is coming from. They are not people who try to rub others' noses up the wrong way. But instead, they quietly set about their life with a servant heart blending into the background. At one of my churches in Northampton, there was an elder who much of the time wouldn't say boo to a goose. She was very meek quite mild in how she did things in her normal day job she worked long hours starting early in the morning and didn't earn much yet she had a generosity of heart there was a meekness in her life that actually led to other things If the church needed to do anything, she would be there at the drop of a hat. She's still four years on after us having left Northampton, remembers our birthdays and sends the kids something at Christmas. She'd be appalled if she knew I was stood here describing her in that way, because she's meek. You would barely notice her in the street. But it's people like her that will inherit the earth. The new earth. That Christ is bringing. 
those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, should be every one of us. All of us who claim to be followers of the Lord should have that hunger within us to see God's kingdom coming. But is that the case? Few of us have probably known real hunger. The not eaten for days hunger. That hunger that we see in a time of famine on our television. Is our heart yearning for righteousness and for justice to flow like a never-ending stream in the way that we see those people hunger? I wonder. Does the need of righteousness perhaps in some situations not for us but need for others to see righteousness and justice move us to change our own habits to speak in a different way to lead us to tell politicians that they need to be seeking God's way what's right in the Lord's eyes not our own I wonder if it moves us that far the survival rule of three says uh, three days without drinkable water three weeks without edible food we would die there is also a lesser spoken three which is three months without hope hope drives people forward lost on a desert island as I was at fellowship the other week lost on a desert island it is hope that makes us build the shelter and look for the food and do the things that keep us going listening to the records or reading the story hope that we will be rescued and taken out of that situation to something new hope causes us to say things can be different not just to survive but to thrive does our hope in Jesus make us say his kingdom can be seen here that righteousness can be known and justice will flow does it lead us to be the things that Jesus carries on speaking about in the Beatitudes? To be merciful people, pure of heart, seeking to be peacemakers in a society that continually seems to become more fractious rather than cohesive. The Beatitude teaching to the disciples by Jesus 
says the life of a believer is not easy. And the closer you live to his ways, the more challenging it can be. For people may call you names. They'll think less of you. They may wish to see you suffer. And for his followers, they may wish to see you die. He spells it out here at the beginning of his ministry. And we still see it in the world today. The persecuted church is part of the one church that we are part of. They are our brothers and sisters. Because of their faithfulness, they rejoice and are glad. And they will experience great reward in heaven. Would we do something at such risk, I wonder? Because the reward is great for the risk. I wonder too if you're glad to be a disciple. If you're glad to hear the hard teaching. Or if you would rather be left in the crowd beside the lake, fluttering and dancing in the breeze, just living for the day. That yellow host that brought much delight to Wordsworth at that time and then later as he reflected on it would but stay a yellow bunch of daffodils for a few weeks. His memories remained but he didn't record that for the real daffodil the real member of the crowd, a day will come when the season changes. When the petals fall and it all withers. I wonder, with that in mind, do you want to be part of the crowd? Or among the disciples. Amen. Let's pray.